Hey, everyone, and welcome back to This Could Have Been an Email, the podcast. I'm Alex. And I'm Nicole. And we are back. We are back. Oh, my gosh. I'm excited about this one. Before we jump in, how was your week? Um, How was my week? Okay. I feel like I have finally kind of let myself realize that whatever's going to get done for the wedding is going to get done. And if it doesn't get done, it doesn't get done. That is where we are. (laughs) Good. Good. Yeah. I mean, we're just getting to a place where we're two weeks out, which is insane. And it's going to be fun regardless. And that's all that matters. It's true. But yeah, I mean, I've made incredible progress on all of my DIY, you know, branded swag for the wedding, as Nicole can see here. I'm so excited. But I mean, the reality is prioritization has come into play, especially with obviously my new job, lots of meetings and working a lot later these days. So I've really had to just balance keeping it together otherwise you know i'm gonna blow so here's my one question for you you are a morning bird are you sleeping in now are you still waking up early that's a really great question nicole it's super weird but i am sleeping till like eight which i've never done before wow yeah like never done i i will try to get up earlier the reality is i i do have days where i still wake up at my 5 36 o'clock 5 a.m clubbers out there And we're trying to do this workout situation in the basement, do a little cardio every day. But yeah, I mean, otherwise, I'm very much like staying in bed as late as I can because I don't really start work till like 930, 10 o'clock these days, sometimes even 1030. Right. So I have to figure out like what does my new morning routine look like? Um, And it's taken some time to figure out. Clearly, I haven't figured it out yet because I have a lot of time to fill. I'm As many of our listeners know, I always think that, you know, reading should probably be a thing. Probably. But it's also like, what point in your day are you ready for that? Some people are not really a morning reader. I've also found, honestly, that reading literally puts me to sleep, like regardless of the time. Yeah. I can't do morning yoga flows because they put me to bed. Yeah. I mean, I just, I I can't do it. I have to find like the right time. Anyway, how was your week? It was good. We had Halloween, which was cute. You guys did like a fantastic table. Oh, thank you. I owe it all to Brett. We weren't really going to do anything wild, but he's like obsessed with Plaster of Paris and had these like skull molds that he'd made like a few months ago, actually. And I said, well, what if we can find like Dollar Tree paint sets? Dollar Tree is where it's at. If you don't already know, perfect way to do like little gifts and treats. And so it it turned out very impressive looking. Um, The kids went crazy. They really liked it. A lot of kids actually didn't take chocolate and took the craft. My kids 100% would have taken the craft. So like as the parent, I did the parent of young kids card. So it was like, here's a table. Here's a bowl. Please be honest and take one to two pieces while I'm trick or treating with my own kids. So we had a sugar high next day. I walked my son into daycare. He vomited all over me. And then I said, goodbye. And walked him right back out. But then the rest of the day, he was just ravenous, no fever, no nothing. So pretty sure we ate too much candy. So that's great. And then I restarted for the first time in years. I started dance classes. Okay. I saw this. Yes. That is like the coolest thing. So you like tap dance before? I do tap and jazz and ballet. That's amazing. I done them for like years in my youth. And then did it for a little bit back in like adulthood at the studio downtown that went out of business. The funniest part was I went to my daughter and I said, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. You and mommy are going to be taking dance at the same studio and we're going to be 
maybe in the same recital. Isn't that exciting? And she goes, uh, no. Well, because she's also just way too cool. So, I mean, she doesn't want mom there. I know, which I'm kind of like, respect, man. Like, she's like, this is my thing, mom. I'll have to show you sometime. But, you know, Brett was also like show choir in high school. And uh, there are definitely a pair of tap shoes down here in the basement that look weathered and super loved. Love that. Yes. And and that was the best. Like I had some, some legitimacy. My jazz shoes were like totally worn out. I need to buy new ones. But the teacher was like, I see you've danced. And then we compared our worn out shoes. But I thought my tap shoes would fit. And alas, after 19 years and two kids, they don't fucking fit my feet anymore. The tap shoes are so comfortable and appropriately sized. That brings me so much joy for you. And I hope it brings you a ton of joy, too. I hope so, too. It's It was really fun and a good workout. We always bring up these hobbies. They're still super important. And we still haven't done an episode on that. But I'd really like to because we have to remember these things that bring us joy outside of work. Season two, it's happening yeah. because we've both talked about it multiple times. It's very important. It is super important. Just like our topic today, we are exploring higher education. So if we can all go back in the Wayback Machine, there was a time when only white rich men had the privilege to go to college and kind of receive this higher education, which, you know, back then likely only meant what we now think of as an undergrad degree. Then it became almost a norm that a graduate degree, you know, a, a bachelor's was almost bare bones required for most jobs after graduation. And for immigrants, especially, you know, Nicole and, and I share an immigrant family story. Our parents and families in many cases didn't go to college, let alone high school. And so completing an undergraduate degree as, as first generation Americans is an incredible milestone. Then I know for me, especially my mom set an example after finishing her B.A. in her 30s. She decided to then pursue an MBA, which changed the trajectory of her career. And it almost honestly felt like in corporate, a master's level degree was required to move up the ladder and make more money. So I know I decided to pursue an MPS, um, which is a master of professional studies. It's just super focused um, in marketing and, and branding in my late 20s. But I did it because it didn't require a GMAT score. <laughs> and it was a new program at my alma mater that kind of invited me to apply. And it was a great program. I mean, did it, you know, did it get me to where I am today? I don't know. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot. You know, I had a lot of experience to bring to the table during that degree. But return on investment is something that we're going to talk a lot about today. Meanwhile, here I am considering like a mini MBA next year, because while I have a master's, there are some things that I just don't feel like I learned about business that I, I think I want to learn. Well, and I didn't realize until... Um, we were preparing for this. My mom also got her MBA in her 30s. Like I was at her graduation and then she went and got her PhD. So anytime my daughter hurts her finger, she's like, Lita, you're a doctor. Can you help me? And I'm like, yes, I don't even I don't even correct her. I'm like, yes, she can. She's brilliant. Um, but yeah, you and I in, in discussing this, we have different experiences. So I've decided not to pursue my MBA until it's something that for me is identified as something that I need to kind of like progress my career. And I have friends who've also done this. I have a friend who's an entrepreneur and he was um, asked by his alma mater to come back and get an MBA. And he was like, look, while that's wonderful and while someday I might want to, 
it's a lot more difficult to start your own company than it is to get your MBA, right? Not a dig at people getting their MBAs, but like what's right for you. And so looking at the flip side, the demand of MBAs has actually gone down in recent years. And according to research from the Education Advisory Board, there's a decline of 34% in the number of job postings that ask for an MBA. Also, the average cost of an MBA can range from 55000 to 161000 And clearly that's across very different institutions. I mean, that's a down payment on a house. It's a wicked down payment too. It's like, I saved for this. And so it's kind of that like, there's research that shows that an increased earning potential and open opportunities is equated with getting an MBA. Like when I've looked, I've never had a job show up that has required an MBA for the ones that I've wanted. And so an interesting fact that I found that I think speaks to all that is right now, the occupations that typically require a master's degree, this is according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, that group, so you're required to have a master's, is still the smallest group in terms of base year employment. However, it's the fastest growing, right? So I feel like this is a really salient conversation that like when I see, when I look at jobs today, it might not. And that and that study was from 2016, which was this magical year that you and I kept running into. Yeah, for whatever reason, we can't find any updated data on this. Please, government, do some more fucking research. Have some PhDs help you with some research. But I think it's a great conversation to have because you see so many people on either sides of this conversation make really great points. And it really is such a personal decision based on you and your industry. And I think that's what we're going to dive into a bit more today. Yes. So we've been talking a lot about data or lack of data around MBAs. We've talked a lot about master's um, level education. But if you can believe it, out there, there are people that decide after a bachelor's, after a master's to pursue a PhD, which I think is wild because it just seems like so much more work. But they are people that are passionate enough about an incredible topic that needs research and needs dedicated work. And so they pursue it. And I personally only know one entire person getting a PhD who is here with us today, and she is my sister. Before we introduce her, I I know, Nicole, you've mentioned a couple of PhDs already. So I just want to say off the top, kudos out there to all the PhDs, especially any of the lady PhDs out there. You're amazing. Keep doing what you do. But especially today, welcome, Adrian. It's so nice to have you. Excited to be here. Well, off the top, I'm also going to say that I cannot wait to go back and edit this because we've always been told that we have very similar voices. So it it might be tough for the listeners. I think the listeners are maybe going to hate us for this episode because I've been told (laughs) that I sound like you. Oh, really? Yes. There's some people who are like, sometimes when you get, you both get in the same wavelength. So I feel (laughs) like the third sister. I'm going to call myself that. You guys don't stop me. Uh, Duh, you're totally the third sister. (laughs) Okay, Adrian. Well, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit more about you. So I'm Adrian, and I am currently pursuing my PhD in epidemiology. So very relevant now, having just gone through a pandemic that people actually know what I'm studying. But I'm focused in social epidemiology and aging outcome. And yeah, I'm living out in San Diego, pursuing this PhD in my fourth year. And 
It's been an adventure. It's been a journey, to say the least. I'm looking forward to talking about it with you guys. Well, let's just jump right into it. We've talked a lot about our backgrounds, Nicole and I, and our decisions around pursuing or not pursuing secondary education. What are we calling it? Postgrad um, or all the things after undergrad. But yeah, why don't you talk us through your journey a little bit? Obviously, one doesn't just land at a PhD after college. I have no idea what what I would do one on or what my journey would have looked like. But why don't you take us through yours and, and what led you to deciding to get a PhD? Sure. So I think for me, it's really been a journey of trial and introspection a lot for me. I think since I was young, when asked what I wanted to be when I grow up, I wanted to be a doctor. So I can help people. And I was good at the sciences and the math. And so it seems like the natural kind of career for me to pursue. When I was in college and I did my pre-med sciences and I majored in neuroscience and behavior, I was still very much on that MD trajectory. Once you get on that trajectory, it's kind of hard to get off of it. And so you often find people who kind of just keep doing the things and don't actually know if it's what they want to be doing. So after graduating from my undergrad, I did largely stay kind of in the clinical setting while trying to study and prepare for the MCAT, which was the bane of my existence. I never actually, I never ended up taking it just because, you know, I think conceptually and theoretically, I understand these things, but just that type of test is not for me. And it doesn't reflect my like capacity or my knowledge, in my opinion. But it was really working in a clinical setting that I saw it was I was doing cancer research and seeing firsthand just the health disparities that people of color and lower socioeconomic status people were experiencing in the clinic in relation to research studies, in relation to their outcomes. That really got me interested in social epidemiology, which is the study of those kind of socioeconomic risk factors on your health. And so still kind of thinking I might pursue medical school, but having a master's in public health kind of align with that career still and be able to kind of allow me to do research as a doctor, I pursued my MPH. And it was after that, what I've tried to do is like get experience with the degree before deciding like what to do next and what my next career move is. So I moved into more of a public health space, global HIV research and programming. And it was kind of there that I found we were recommending and implementing these public health strategies, but they weren't translating well into the communities that we were trying to serve. And there was just this disconnect, but no one really doing that research or asking those questions, at least in our setting. And so kind of seeing that I was, again, identifying these gaps that no one was really addressing. And also that, you know, no one was really listening to me when I was making recommendations or trying to say, you know, we should take a different approach when we're doing certain things. I felt like I was kind of needing to 
prove my knowledge to be able to take those next steps and to be kind of respected in the field and to be able to do that research. So it was then that I decided to pursue a PhD in epidemiology to really just become an expert in the methods needed to answer these questions that no one else seemed interested in asking. I get two things from that. One, I think Adrian's applying for sainthood. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. My mom and I are always just like, what do you do again? Because you're you're absolutely saving the world. I'm so excited that you're doing this work and that there are people doing it. And to your point, like, we all got a healthy, overly healthy dose of the importance of scientists in our day-to-day with COVID. And so just, I mean, thank you for all of the amazing work that you're doing because it's wonderful. And if you need references on that sainthood application, (laughs) let me know. I used to be very Catholic, so I probably have a hookup somewhere too. You just let me know. Uh, But the, the other thing that I think is so fascinating about what you described, you know, before we unpack the, the pressures of getting your PhD, um, is this whole idea of like collecting almost data points in experience before making a decision. I feel like sometimes, and my my dad actually got his MBA first. My mom got her master's, but my dad got his MBA. And he went back to school and uh, while we were, you know, little and was, well, we were a little older, but he would sit in the classroom and there'd be a bunch of students there. And the teacher would ask a question, you know, hypotheticals. And my dad, everyone always wanted to be in my dad's like group because they were like, Kurash, you come up with the best answers. How do you do this? And he literally would just be like, I've worked. And they were like, what? Cause they were all going right out of undergrad. Right. And mm-hmm. so he was like, my dad said, I wish kids weren't allowed to do that because it's such a shame, not only for like, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know, but you also don't get as much out of it because you can't think of these situations to apply it to, especially in the business world where so much like a finance class. Sure. That's probably easy to not need experiences for, but I just find that really interesting and probably something that's always resonated with me of like, You didn't take the traditional, I'm all in on a PhD right after school, which doesn't feel like, um, at least outside of my mother, many of the PhDs that I know of did take that more traditional, they knew that they wanted a PhD. And that was the trajectory, which I just find fascinating. Yeah. I mean, and and I look forward to Adrian maybe explaining this a little bit to us, but you know, as someone that knows nothing about PhDs, it, in my mind, um, I would imagine that one of the biggest reasons to get a PhD is if you want to be some kind of professor or teacher in higher education. But we know that that's not <laughs> the only reason someone would follow that path. Obviously, there's so many permutations, including Adrian's. Right. So let's jump into that, Adrian, of like why you wanted to, you got to a point and you were like, okay, in industry oh, I'm going to go get my master in public health. And then you went back in industry and were like, oh, I'm going to go back and get my PhD. I'm not a masochist. I'm a smart lady who is doing this for a reason, right? And I say the masochist piece because the average PhD takes eight years to complete and costs on average $240,000. And let me tell you, like, it is poor working hours. My partner went for his PhD, ended up mastering out. He never had a day off. He had to go in and feed his cells 
And if we took a vacation, he had to find someone to feed them, right? He had to find someone to cover. Also, a traditional science PhD, after that, you go to a two-year postdoc where you're earning on average $55,000 a year, which doesn't put a dent in that 240 you just spent, right? <laughs> so, like, can you tell us why you felt like the PhD was something you were going to pursue? And what were the things that kind of played into that calculus? So for me personally, again, just trying to really figure out what it was that I wanted to be when I grow up <laughs> and kind of still going back between that like MD, PhD kind of debate of, you know, I can help people in either case, either more on right. like an individual level or on a population level where you're actually like potentially affecting more change. So for me, I really like made a list and it has four things on it, which was that I wanted some autonomy in my career to be able to kind of ask the questions and be able to answer the question that I was interested in asking. I think the second one for me was to be in kind of an intellectually stimulating profession. I mean, I've, I've always been a student and enjoy learning. And I don't think I'd be satisfied in a job that's kind of just not challenging me in some capacity. Third was money. <laughs> I definitely... No shame. No shame. <laughs> I have a quality of life that I want. And you know that our mom worked really hard for us to have that I want to be able to pass on to my kids as well. And then that last piece was really still helping people and trying to make change. So I really kept those things in mind and found that pursuing a PhD would allow me to do those things. But then the second piece, again, going back to just that no one's asking the question that I'm interested in asking. And it goes kind of back to having that diversity at the table and a recognition that I am a person of color and a woman who has made it this far in my education and has the capacity to kind of affect that change for people who don't have a voice and who won't have a voice at those tables. And with my master's, again, I kind of mentioned like no one was really like listening or respecting the things that I was putting forth. Like I certainly didn't have a seat at the table. So those were kind of some of my my motivators and then being able to kind of educate the next generation and people of color in that next generation to be able to kind of continue that work. PhDs are kind of, you're not really doing it for the money. I mean, academia, unless you're a tenured professor and have like a really proven track record in publication and grant awards, you're not really doing it for the money. It's usually for, you know, you're asking these questions. Oh, that's such a good way to <laughs> think about whether you want to make a huge life choice. Um, you know, I'm like I mentioned, I'm thinking about getting this mini MBA. And I love that you put that list together because I do think, you know, I would never shit on my master's in any way. But I do think, you know, that there were things that I probably needed to learn that I didn't learn through that program. And had I assessed better the learnings that I needed at the time versus what I was going to be learning in the program, I may or may not have pursued that MPS and maybe I should have done an MBA. But again, I am I said it up front. I'll say it again all day long. I don't do standardized tests. So whether I took the easy route or not, 
I, I do think now, almost six years, seven years later, I'm at a different point in my career where I do feel like that business expertise is needed and, and we'll see what happens. But I guess my point is that, you know, I really like that you applied that lens to your decision making about the PhD. Um, and maybe I should do the same thing. <laughs> I love that it's very much the insight to make that list. I'm a big list maker um and like taking a step back and being like okay what do I actually want like no judgment right because the three of us can sit here having immigrant parents and being like money is very important in that immigrant story like they moved here they worked hard they sacrificed for a reason and it is burned into our brains that like we will do the same for our children right so like I don't take any judgment out of I don't think anyone should judge their list but I also think it's really fantastic to, and upsetting. It's upsetting that people wouldn't take you as seriously as they would if you had three extra letters after your name. Again, not to degrade all the fantastic study that comes after a PhD, but to your point of there are still systems of racism at work in this country that disadvantage people from getting higher education degrees. So if this was like a, right? You can't um, jump as high as I can. That's like, we all have, one would argue, equal access opportunity to learn to jump well, right? You cannot argue the same of higher education. I was looking up this stat. Of all PhDs given, again, in 2016, I don't know what it is. No research. I don't know. They COVID, <laughs> they were just like, I'm done. Of all PhDs given in 2016, um, only 6.7% of them were given to African-Americans and 7% to Latinos. This is from the National Science Foundation. So like still like something, like 60% of all PhDs upwards of that go to white people. And mm -hmm. so I think to your point, there is something also to be said for everyone based on their intersectional background has a different makeup. And sometimes a person of the community is the best person to speak on how to well represent or guess at what the key drivers are for that community. And when you don't have a diverse workforce in any field, policing, teaching, business, science, the inequities start to become amplified. So like, that's a big, heavy burden to take on your shoulders another good point for the sainthood application but like <laughs> it's a very true factor absolutely and just to kind of bring it back it truly the fundamental cause of like the majority of health disparities is education and socioeconomic status differences in different communities uh, the access to like flexible resources for you to be able to have like a healthier lifestyle or to have access to, you know, better job opportunities or health insurance or income to be able to afford a house in like a safer neighborhood. And so really like the importance of education earlier in the life course is incredibly important. And people of color and lower socioeconomic individuals just don't have access to flexible resources to be able to like get that level of education in a lot of instances. It's a great point because uh, I was just thinking even my jumping analogy doesn't hold anymore because I'm like, well, did someone live in a food desert? Did they have yeah. access <laughs> to well, well-positioned nutrition? 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I would argue who's teaching them how to jump, right? Like, are we talking about Jordan came to town and taught us how to jump, or you know, we're just learning with a jump rope? Even like, I would say also it's like quality of services and of education, right? Because it's yes. like you think of people who, who is it? Did Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah, wait, he did. Or was it Steve Jobs? Whoever, all of these like billionaires who didn't go to college, but I'm sure that their high school experience was of such a quality that they had the skill set to do what they wanted to do without having to pursue that higher education. And so it's interesting to me because I think before you wouldn't need a higher degree because your experiences that you accumulated throughout your life would prove that you're capable of doing this job. Whereas like that experience and like for younger people entering the workforce, it's like we don't have that experience, but you have a master's that shows that you know what to do and you can apply those things in in your work experience. So it's like, I don't know, it's just interesting the quality of education and resources that you have earlier on in your life. So if we go back to to Alex, your your question, which the three of us like when discussing planning this, we were all talking about, is it worth it? What's the ROI? What's the efficacy? Like, Adrian, in your experience, do you feel like you are being listened to more now or you do have different opportunities? My mom knew very specifically without a PhD, she could never apply to be a superintendent. And while that wasn't the path she went down, that was what she wanted to do. Right. And so I guess I would love to understand, like, do we feel like or do you feel like you're in, in your experience, you're still happy you're going down that path? It's actually, yes. For me personally, yes. But I think, you know, return on investment, it depends on what you're centering. If it's about the income that you make afterwards or your subject matter expertise, regardless of your ultimate salary. But I think for me personally, I have a really good scenario. When I graduated from my master's in public health, I started working at this organization in one role where I was more of like a program manager slash analyst of these programs that we were implementing in different countries. And then I started my PhD two years after and stayed at the same organization, but on the research branch of it. So like actually conducting studies in these countries to inform the programs. So my supervisor in my first role genuinely never, I don't know, like believed or like respected my knowledge and what I had to contribute. I started at the same time as this other girl. She started with six countries in her portfolio. I had three and it was just very like, I don't know, no respect in that relationship of like listening to the things that I had to contribute. Mm. And since moving and starting this PhD and starting on this other team, you should hear how this man speaks about me on this team and is like, (laughs) oh, my God, Adrian, she was the best. We're like so sad that like we don't have her anymore on our team. She contributed so much. And it's like, why are you saying that now? Yep. (laughs) Right. And I mean, luckily on my current team, like from the beginning, they really saw the value that I added. And that has just increased as I've gone throughout this program and I'm leading projects and I'm a role model for younger people coming into the organization. So for me personally, I've seen a dramatic shift in just, yeah, those settings. And again, like people are like, oh, well, you must 
have something to add to this conversation because you have those letters, which isn't fair necessarily, right? But There's, it's reality. My, my husband, Greg, I would say is like 10 times smarter than I am. And he just has an undergraduate degree and he has more to contribute to so many conversations than a lot of our friends who are pursuing MDs or PhDs. So it's like, it shouldn't have as much weight as it does, but I've found that it has made a difference. At least maybe it's in my organization not having like the best leadership, but <laughs> I've I've seen a difference. <laughs> At least what I've heard anecdotally is a lot of science has that because also the, oh God, what did we say we were going to call them instead of soft skills? Interpersonal skills, I forget what. But those <laughs> skills needed to be an effective and thoughtful and good manager. Those skills needed for all of that aren't really highlighted in the sciences. So Adrian, I think your point is extremely salient and probably very applicable to other science organizations and other technical organizations where like how to be a good manager, how to progress someone's career, how to talk to someone, how to see these other non-tangible, the, the more qualitative things. I think it's extremely valid and I'm happy to hear it's it's worth that. It's unfortunate because of the system that it had to be. But I think it's an important nod to the system, too, actually. So I've just been thinking through, you know, Nicole and I both work in digital and technology, right? Is there a master's in technology business administration? Are these higher education degrees as applicable to the career paths that we're all actually on? In, in many cases, and to your point, you didn't necessarily pursue one because you didn't feel like you needed it. But if there were other options... Um, you know, might you then have have considered one if you felt like there was one that would advance your career? For me, again, I'm still very much back and forth about whether it's really paid off or not as an experience on its own versus it being a part of my story to date and how I've been able to build on that thereafter. I know shortly after finishing it, I did land my kind of corporate gig here in Madison, where I worked with Nicole for a little bit. And I could tell you straight away, it was a senior manager role, which is a more senior role at a corporate organization. But it also got me to Madison. That's changed my whole life in the last five years. But it's fascinating, you know, to really think about the expertise that I need now to continue potentially growing into more senior roles. And like I said before, I do feel like I'm missing some of those business fundamentals that I may have been able to get from an MBA. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so that's why I'm now thinking of this kind of mini MBA. But if you think about how a mini MBA even exists, it's at Rutgers Business School. It's an online version that you can do self-paced, but it speaks to the fact that these degrees have to change based on what's going on in the reality of the workforce. I'm glad there's a mini MBA. It is a fraction of the cost of an actual MBA. I will get those fundamentals, I would hope, from taking it. But again, I think it just it just speaks to the need for for rethinking <laughs> higher education. I agree. Yeah. Just how are these schools adjusting their offerings based on what people actually need? And we're speaking to the inequities and the socioeconomic, all the things Adrian is talking about. We have to have options that not just the richest people can afford. And our schools offering those options. You have continuing education, but a lot of times those are certificates. They're not seen as higher education. But I, I think schools that maybe start offering these alternate degree options that can hopefully still carry as much weight as these traditional secondary and tertiary education degrees might offer, 
that's really important because let's be honest, it's not available everywhere and it's not always available at all, really. And sorry, but I mean, the mini MBA is still going to cost like seven grand. It's not it's not a hundred dollars. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's not you know, that's not a down payment on a house, but that's that's a that's a very big trip somewhere. I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. It's that it's a really great it's a really great point, right? Like there's still like these levels of barriers. And remind me, what was your title before your corporate gig here in Madison? So before I came to Madison, I worked at a lot of like smaller, medium sized businesses where quite candidly, I could have called myself whatever I wanted. But I would say experience wise, I was a digital marketing manager, you know, with some leadership experience. And so going into corporate, I I felt like the role was kind of lateral, um, but I did end on a senior manager, which, you know, at a corporate level is is right behind kind of a director. So I think like to Adrian's point of earlier, I think one thing masters do help with is oftentimes they help you jump related experience, which is something that I really appreciate in job postings when it's like master's or equivalent years of experience. And mm -hmm. I think that's how it should be looked at. So I would say in your case, it probably did help, right? Being able to like, and then you jump to a direct VP title, right? So again, those vary a little bit within industry, within size of company. But I would say, you know, there's still times where I have decided not to get an MBA, but I'm constantly like, oh, should I start one a month ago, though? Oh, should I start <laughs> one in two months? Right. Because to your point, you, you don't you never want to wait until the roadblock is there to start. But I think it's a super insightful point to make of like uh, higher education is very much like healthcare, where they are super slow on the uptake. Like there are some healthcare systems because of all these things they have to follow that are way behind the times, right? Yeah. I mean, that's really the core of it. That It just feels like they're super behind. I read somewhere that the jobs of the kids being born today, like, don't exist yet. Where where are there more degrees for kids to learn AI? I'm, I'll get off my soapbox on that. But yes, very slow to the uptake. Anyway, Nicole, you alluded to this earlier in terms of the investment and the time it takes to pursue a PhD with your husband, having to get someone to check on his cells while you guys are going on vacation. Adrian, are you are you ever done? Like, where are you in this process? And and when are you officially a PhD? So normally when you start a PhD, you're required to have had like a master's level of education already. So in my PhD program, it was two years of coursework followed by various qualifying examinations, which I'm in a, a dual institution program. So I have a total of four different hurdles that I have to jump to be considered a PhD candidate. And once you're considered a PhD candidate, you're then officially working on your dissertation work and it kind of however long it takes you to complete that research composed your final dissertation kind of work in like a single report. And then you defend that. And if your committee deems that <laughs> it is of high scientific quality and that you've accomplished the subject matter and that you're essentially an expert in the field, at that point, you are a PhD. And so it's really variable in time because, I mean, the, it, at least the two years of required coursework some people go in already knowing exactly what their dissertation work is going to be. They have their data available and they can punch it out really quickly in like 
a total of three to four years combined. But again, depending on the PhD, you might be collecting data to be able to address your dissertation aims. It's really self-paced and self-motivated. And so it can be the full, your max is eight, seven years for my program that you have to complete it within. And as you mentioned earlier, Nicole, I mean, you just keep like specializing further and further. So after you're done with your PhD, you can go on to like a two or four year fellowship, which then gives you additional subject matter expertise and like a certain subset, which can be like specific outcomes or specific risk factors, communities. And then at that point, you're done. So if if you pursue a fellowship, that's usually up to an additional four years after however long it took to get your PhD. And again, if you're staying in academia, at least how it's been up until this point, and I don't know if there's kind of a shifting winds because it is just so many barriers preventing people from just like actually staying in academia, that it might not be as much of a priority, but fellowships are like, if you want to be a tenured track professor, like most of those have fellowships after the PhD. So it's really just a life of lifelong learning. (laughs) Well, and then, and then there's this whole other track of like, if you want to go into industry, right? One of the guests that we're hoping to get for next season did just that. She actually did her postdoc in the military studying like nutrition and mental health with soldiers in field. And then she went into industry. And so, yeah, it's, it is quite the commitment as you've just laid out. I couldn't do it. I know. I couldn't either. I like remember reviewing my mom's final dissertation and like 40 pages in, I was like, this is exhausting. <laughs> like if I did it, it would be in marketing. And like, what would I even really talk about for all of these pages? I don't know. I It's not my jam, um, but that's okay because I can do this mini MBA and I can do it in like four months, self-pace. And we can appreciate <laughs> people like Adrian who are just like saving all of Masochist. us. <laughs> a masochist. You're taking joy out of it. So somehow for you, it's not. <laughs> it's really rewarding. I don't know. It's fun because especially if you're doing research in something that you're passionate about and you're kind of creating just like a collaborative environment with all of these other researchers and people with tremendous experiences and working together to ask these questions and figure out how to answer them. It's, I don't know, it's fun. <laughs> I wish, I wish we could have like a view of how consuming. big, how big Adrienne's smile is. It's <laughs> like, she's like cheesing throughout saying that. I was like, is she going to put her lips together over that smile so she could say words? So sweet. That's such a great point. And I think something to really focus on just based on what I was thinking earlier is just like, I guess it, if you're passionate about it and if it's what you want to do, like it doesn't matter how hard it is or I guess how expensive it is. As long as it puts a smile on your face, even if it's really hard, um, I think especially when you're doing work that is going to impact generations, then, I mean, you may as well get those important three letters after your name. I would say I'm passionate about what I'm studying. I'm less passionate about necessarily, it's really just hurdles for you to stay within academia. And so I go back and forth still about academia or industry. And that's really like one of the debates as far as the ROI, because of course, going to a pharmaceutical company, like this is going to pay off immediately, Mm -hmm. truly like immediately. Mm -hmm. Whereas staying in academia, it 
definitely more of that long road still ahead and getting the pleasure and the return personally of contributing to science and being able to inform strategies in the future that'll hopefully make a difference. So you can do that in industry too. <laughs> well, keep keep me updated and I'll keep everyone on the podcast updated. <laughs> Can't wait to see where you end up, industry or academia. Any any last thoughts as we wrap up? Any advice to any of our listeners that might be like, ooh, girl, I thought about a PhD or a master's and then bailed, but I'm still thinking about it. You know, I think the advice that I have is to just not make rash decisions <laughs> and to collect those experiences. I think there's been such like our entire lives, you as kids, as young as five or six, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then they get it in their head and they mm. stick to that without reflecting and thinking about what am I good at? What am I passionate about? What do I ultimately want? And that doesn't have to end. People are living to be 90 plus, right? You're going to have multiple careers. You're going to have multiple lives almost like throughout your life course. And so just continuing to reflect on your experiences. I think of Sheryl Sandberg. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not a ladder, it's a jungle gym. And so going like from place to place, collecting those experiences, letting that inform where you end up going. I have, I have nothing to add to her words. Nothing. Yeah. You jump around your jungle gym. I, I really love that because we can lean in, we can pretend that everything we're doing is adding up to this one big thing. But dear God, do we know that you go up a few stairs and sometimes you come down a few stairs and that balance is super important to keep front of mind is that it is a jungle gym and you got to just jump around sometimes. Absolutely. This has been such an amazing and inspiring conversation. Adrian, thank you again for joining us. Um, I think it's a conversation that we're never really done with. I saw a meme the other day that said nobody at any level knows what they're doing at work. And so I can't help but think, especially in corporate, do we really need to start thinking about what is the minimum viable experience that people need and, and how do they actually grow an experience over time? So thank you again for sharing your story, for being so passionate about very specifically what you're studying uh, because it matters tremendously. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is wonderful. Thank you again. And as Alex and I kind of queued up at the beginning. This is one of our last episodes of this season. So we're hopefully going to be bringing you one or two more and then wrapping up and taking a little break and come back at you with a great second season. But in the meantime, go change the world. Be a little bit of Adrian. Thank you everyone for joining us. Have a great week and we'll chat soon. Bye. Bye friends. <laughs>